Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. And welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. My name is Sophia Chandraskar. In this episode, our two speakers, Galena Dronova and Dr. John McClure of Methodist Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, talk about acute myeloid leukemia and discuss a couple of case studies. Today's episode was produced by Galena Dronova and the Leadership Academy class of 2020. Today's episode is also available for PACE credit. It was actually the first PACE podcast episode we created. To obtain CE credit, please go to ascls.org slash off the bench and follow the instructions under how to obtain podcast CE credit. I'm Galena, a medical laboratory scientist currently working at a Minnesota-based healthcare company as a learning specialist with our laboratory information system. And today our guest on the podcast is Dr. John McClure, who wanted to be a professional brewer or bagpipe player, but couldn't cut it in either field. So he settled for hematopathology. He's currently practicing at Methodist Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and his prior accomplishments include being a course director at the University of Minnesota in lab medicine and pathology, and a medical director at various hospital and clinical laboratories around the Twin Cities area. Another accomplishment of his is that he has currently no felony convictions, Um, so congratulations on that, and uh, welcome to the show, John. Thank you. We are spending some time today discussing all things acute myeloid leukemia, um, classification related based on cytogenetics, clinical scenarios, molecular analysis, and everything in between from patient presentation to treatment. Um, And just as a reminder to everyone, acute myelogenous or myeloid leukemia is a hematologic malignancy characterized by clonal proliferation of myeloblasts. It is actually the most common type of leukemia in adults, and it is uniformly fatal without treatment, i.e. lowest survival rate of all leukemias. Is that still correct? Yep. Excellent. So before we get started talking about AML, uh, I figured to take a second and talk a little bit about you. Um, Specifically, I'm wondering, while you were in medical school, what made you pick the path of being a pathologist instead of any other specialty, like a urologist, for example? Uh, when I was in medical school, the last thing I wanted to be was a pathologist. Uh, our course, I went to the University of Washington. Our course there was a disaster. The pathology segments for each course were every Friday afternoon, so nobody wanted to be there. Uh, it was dull. It was disorganized. I hated pathologists. I thought they were all dweebs, and my older brother was a practicing pathologist at the time. So it, um, it was not high on my radar early in my, uh, early in my career. I, I, I started in pediatrics and about, uh, six months into my internship, um, I, uh, I, I realized that I was not going to emerge from pediatric training, uh, emotionally intact. So I found the farthest spot I could get from it. And that turned out to be pathology. And I wanted to t- stay in the P specialties, you know, so any mini miny mo pathology landed and you're just a sucker for pain and decided to come back to it. Exactly. Uh how long have you been a practicing pathologist for? Oh, let's see. It uh it'll be 
I have been out of training and, uh, and in practice for uh, 27 years now. This will be 20, uh, my 27th year. And in your time, were you always in Minnesota for practicing pathology or everywhere? Yep. Nope. I did my uh, uh, I did my residency at the University of Minnesota, and then uh, had a had a very brief stint on faculty at the university, um, and then I uh, uh, moved up to uh, uh, Unity and Mercy Hospitals with the uh, with the Alina Group, and I think I was there for eight or nine years, and then uh, uh, 2002 I moved back down to uh, moved back down to Methodist, and I've been there since then. Excellent. Well. They're happy and very lucky to have you. Do you, in your practice, frequently encounter AML diagnosis in your patients? You know, it's an it's an uncommon diagnosis. Um, there are let's see how many of us uh, four of us who divide up the the heme path practice at, at Methodist, and I would guess that each of us probably diagnose maybe three or four cases of AML a year. Um, Probably on average, you know, they always seem to come in uh, come in groups, but uh, but that's probably about an average. And and usually when a case comes in, they're unusual enough and interesting enough that we kind of pass them around. So we typically see all the cases. Um, but I guess I'm primarily responsible for three or four a year. Do you find that a lot of your cases have a more favorable outcome, or are they a little bit tougher? Yeah, you know, AML is still a very tough disease. Um, most people with AML do not survive it, um, and and most of them are are older patients who are not as able to withstand the uh, the, the really rough treatment that uh, that is required to to go for cure. In the last few years, there have been more um, kind of palliative medications that don't uh, that don't expose the patient to such a high risk of you know dying really quickly during treatment. Um, so that gets a little better, but still in most people who are diagnosed with AML die of AML. Um, it's it's still it's still not a great prognosis. There are a couple exceptions, but right when generally uh, one of the negative factors going against people is that they happen in an older population. It's not too common before the age of what forty five. Yeah, you know, any age can get it, but it certainly gets more common the older you get, um, and you know, it gets more common. The diseases tend to get more resistant to treatment, and the patients are just less able to withstand the uh, uh, the, the rigors of the uh, of the chemotherapy. So, kind of everything conspires against you. And and academic centers see a younger patient population; they get more referrals, and they they do more bone marrow transplants. So, a lot of the literature is kind of skewed toward younger patients. When in fact, my experience is really that the the vast majority of our AMLs are in are in people over the age of, of uh, 65. It's, it's, it's an elderly diagnosis in the community. So with that age, uh, one uh, case in particular um, that struck to me when I was a med tech, uh, both at Methodist um, at an, another urgent care clinic site, um, is a patient that was actually not fitting to that older population. He was a relatively uh, young patient. Uh, this was during a time, like I said, I was working both at a clinical facility and a, a hospital setting. So I got to follow this case for quite some time mm -hmm. uh, in multiple capacities. And I was hoping that we would start our conversation today by kind of talking about what this case is. And I kind of have some questions for you 
uh, leading into discussion of AML classification and how you would go about it. Sure, let's do it. So this gentleman was actually in his 20s. Uh, he initially presented to urgent care with diarrhea after traveling. Uh, the tests that were ordered on the patient were all stool culture tests. So there was no blood work that was done. Um, the stool culture test came back negative. Patient uh, went home. However, a month later, he presented again. Uh, but this time it was with fever and aches to our urgent care. Um, at that point, the differential uh, did show a high amount of blasts. And he was transferred uh, to the hospital to uh, be diagnosed later with AML. Now, it became a fairly dreadful uh, situation because the patient eventually uh, got septic, went into multi-organ failure, got you know, shock, DIC, um, and it became a very scary cycle because he was not eligible for a bone marrow transplant because he was an organ failure, but he was also not eligible for um, a liver transplant because he had a compromised immune system. So there was kind of no way out for him to get better uh, and fight the sepsis or the organ failure or the AML. Um, and so eventually he did expire. Mm. So the first part of that case is his initial visit uh, to urgent care for the GI upset. Um, my first question being, um, are GI complications commonly seen in AML presentation? Well, it's not common. Um, you, you can. Um, some AMLs will actually form tumors in the GI tract, kind of solid tumors, which is weird. Um, but it's that, that's not typical. Um, and I think somebody with a history of recent travel, it, it may be unrelated. Um, that may have just been, um, you know, a traveler's diarrhea unrelated, or it, you know, it, it could have been, uh, could have been related to the, to the to the leukemia, but I wouldn't think if it was related to the leukemia, it seems unlikely that he would have gone a month without you know really decompensating in that time. Um, so my guess is it's probably unrelated, but you, know, you can never you can never tell for sure. Right. And the is it common for a basic CBC test not to be done with a patient coming into urgent care with those kinds of symptoms? Yeah, I think I think that would be you, you, you. Some people would some people would get a CBC. Some people wouldn't. Um, you know, in general, I think people get CBCs as kind of a as kind of a health maintenance check to see if someone is is anemic. Um, I think if you're if you've got someone in who you're worried, do they have a, a systemic illness like a severe infection? Um, you want to get a CBC to uh, to see if they've got a, a big neutrophil response that might tell you that yeah, this could be. This could be sepsis, or this could be a serious infection. Um, somebody with pretty uncomplicated diarrhea, I could, I could see someone not getting a CBC, and I think that would be very reasonable. If he looked pretty well, um, uh, e even the stool studies don't always change management very much. Um, uh, so you could, you could probably get by with no lab testing, but that that would not be uncommon. I think the reason I keep looping to that initial presentation is I wonder, had a month earlier a CBC been done for his GI symptoms, could it mm. possibly had an implication for a better outcome once he was admitted for AML? Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing that you're always afraid of, you know, it's and it's it's just one of those things that typically, eat, well, I don't know, typically, but it eats at me. Um, you know, wondering, did I, did I miss something earlier? 
um, that could have made a difference. Um, like I said, AML has a bad outcome, so you you want every advantage you can possibly get. Um, certainly, in 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 this guy, sepsis was a major component of of his you know deterioration, um, and so. The more time you have with no neutrophils, the, the higher risk you are for getting a serious infection like sepsis. Um, so earlier diagnosis conceivably could have changed the natural history. Um, but I, I, you know, you, you just never know. Um, and that's uh, that that is one of the things that I think torments torments all of us. Right. So aside, we talked about you know, his young age, which doesn't mm -hmm. fit the typical risk factors. Um, what are some of the other risk factors that you see in patients presenting with AML? You know, there aren't all, most, most cases do not have clear-cut risk factors. Um, there are some really rare familial um, clusters of AML where there's a strong genetic component. And they've actually gotten split out as a whole separate category in um, uh, in the new WHO. Um, but those are rare. I've never seen one. Um, probably the biggest group that I see are patients who've received prior chemotherapy. Um, so breast cancer patients, patients treated for uh, uh, Hodgkin disease, um, uh, sometimes patients with autoimmune disorders who are treated with alkylating agents like cyclophosphamide, agents that damage DNA. Um, lead to mutations, and that leads to a category of therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. Um, so that's that's definitely the the biggest um, the biggest group of people at risk, or people who've had who've had prior um, uh, chemotherapy that that causes causes DNA damage. Um, uh, smoking uh, causes a very a slight increased risk, but smoking causes an increased risk of just about everything, and then. Um, Uncommon things, radiation, chemical exposures, um, people who work with, with organic solvents um, have an increased risk. So, But most people, it's just bad luck. And I think that's, that's one of the really hard things for, for people want to understand, you know, what did I do to deserve this? What did, what did I do that brought this on? And, and most of the time, you just don't have an answer for that. And it, it, can, it can make people kind of crazy. I've had people convinced that it was Diet Coke. Um, they had they, they they were convinced that if they hadn't drunk so much diet coke in their lives, um, uh, I had one gentleman from Africa who was convinced he had gotten splashed with blood, um, and he was convinced that that's what gave him leukemia. So it's I think that's something that we want to know as humans what caused this, but it's in general there isn't anything. And once again, I'm definitely one of those people because in this patient's case, when I talked to pathologists working on it, he had no significant risk factors. He was young. Uh, he had a stable family life, low stress job, you know, not an exposing environment to radiation or any uh, weird reagents. And so it was really hard for me to justify, you know, how did he get this and how right. did it progress so bad? Well, and right. And, and it's, I mean, for the rest of us, it's kind of nice if we can say, oh, well, that's what caused it. That's why he was at risk and I'm not. Um, it's it's scary to see somebody go from really healthy and vital and, you know, normal looking to deathly ill in such a short period of time. It's, uh, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really frightening thing. It, it makes us all, uh, all see our own mortality a little bit. Right. I think well, one of the 
interesting statistics that really strikes me when it comes to leukemia is the prevalence in males being more frequent than in females. Have you done any studies or read any studies on that? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know why that would be. Um, I, I'm I'm not sure. Of, I'm not sure what the mechanism of that would would be. Um, I don't. You know, I guess smoking has traditionally been slightly more common in men. Um, I don't think necessarily prior treatment for chemotherapy is more common with chemotherapy is more common in men. I, I'm I'm not sure why that is. Um, bad luck. Well, on top of on top of all of this, while I was uh, researching, you know, this question for the podcast, there has been recent development in figuring out the genetics behind it. Um, and mm-hmm. I was hoping I could share it with you because I thought it was Absolutely. very interesting. Um, it, so they're talking about, now this is a study coming from Andrew Lane and the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. Um, and it's talking about genetic predisposition of uh, leukemias in males. And so without veering too far off our, you know, our case study here, what they're discovering is that men with t- certain types of leukemia often possess mm-hmm. mutations of tumor suppressor genes on their X chromosome. So they're finding mm-hmm. genetic mutations for tumor suppressors on the X chromosome. Now, the interesting thing about that is then, of course, you know, what women have two X chromosomes, right. men have one, which is why they're more predisposed. But then you have to start thinking about, well, in women, one of those X chromosomes is inactivated. So is that a moot point? So yeah, right. then no, they took it a step. Thought. Well, they took it a step further and they said, okay, is it fully inactivated? And it turns out that that second X chromosome is actually not. So the full X chromosome contains 800 genes. And during the inactivation of the X chromosome, uh, 50 genes remain active in females. And so they, tur- I know they, uh, they turned these, uh, they turned these genes exits, which stand for escape from X inactivation tumor suppressor genes. And so women essentially have two copies of tumor suppressor genes functioning at all times. Which would make, make a lot of sense. And you, you know, you kind of wonder, you kind of wonder why did we evolve to put any tumor suppressor genes on the X chromosome, you know, given that half our population has only one copy and, <laughs> you know, it seems, it seems like, a, it seems like a planning mistake. Right. Right. Well, and there are, you know, many disorders outside of, leukemia associated with those chromosomes. So now I want to talk to you a little bit more about how you would work up this case. Um, Basically, when I think of leukemia, uh, I'm dividing it into four major categories, acute lymphoblastic, acute myelogenous, chronic lymphocytic, and chronic myelogenous leukemia. So before even we move into mutations or cytogenetics or flow, Um, We're starting at the beginning. So this patient is now at the hospital. Um, You are looking at his peripheral smear. What is a quick criteria that you're looking for during the initial presentation of a patient to help you lean towards? First of all, let's talk about, hey, is this this leukemia versus anything else? And is it, are we looking at something that's potentially chronic or acute? So this is before bone marrow. You know, even before I look at the smear, typically I'll I'll get a phone call um, 
uh, from one of our from one of our uh, technologists who who've seen the smear, um, you know, kind of giving me a heads up that it's going to be it's going to be coming down. Um, and my my first questions are always, what's the neutrophil count? What's the hemoglobin? What's the platelet count? Um, if those are all okay, um, I, I'm much less concerned about it being an acute leukemia because an acute leukemia almost always presents with bone marrow failure. I guess there are rare exceptions, but it, but that's my first question: are the are the the good guy counts normal? Um, if they're if those are all normal and one count is increased, um, then I'm thinking I'm thinking this is more of a chronic leukemia and I can kind of take my time. If it's uh, uh, if there's bad bone marrow failure and there are um, uh, and there are abnormal looking cells, then I'm going to be I'm going to be a little more feel a little more time pressure that this this is likely an acute process. All right. So so cytopenia essentially is what leads you to go the acute route and okay, we got to get on this now. Yep. Yep. And that's and so that's what that's what kind of drives my sense of urgency. And and then a lot of it, it just depends on the on the logistics on, um, uh, you know, how many abnormal cells does someone have in the blood? Uh, honestly, what time of day it is when the when the courier routes are, are available, um, since I know there's a pretty good chance I'm going to want flow if there's if there are a lot of the a lot of the odd cells in the blood. Um, and it's, uh, it's close to time to, uh, for a courier run over to, uh, over the east side. I'm going to, I'm going to ask somebody to grab a tube of blood and send it over and start the flow even before we, even before we plan the bone marrow. Um, cause we can be, we can be using that time. Um, it, it takes some time to have somebody, you know, especially if they're coming in from a clinic to their life is upended. I mean, they, they didn't come in expecting to, uh, expecting to, to uh, be admitted to a hospital for more than a month. So a lot of people are kind of hesitant to do that. They want to go home and feed their pets or grab some clothes. And it sometimes takes a, a lot of time, um, to actually work that out logistically. And then it's kind of nice if they get a chance to meet their, uh, uh, meet their oncologist, um, before someone comes up with a big needle and stabs them in the back. So, um, there is some lead time there that, uh, that, that you know, if I, if I think I can use it to get the flow started, I'll, I'll do that. And so just to understand, you're ordering flow on the peripheral blood. Correct. And you don't always have, you know, sometimes you've got so few cells in the peripheral blood, um, you're not seeing many blasts. You've got bone marrow failure and a rare thing that might be a blast. If that's the case, then I'm, I'm not going to start with flow. I, I figure I'll, I'll I don't want to don't want to waste the money and and uh, waste the resources doing that. I'll um, we'll say no. We got to get the bone marrow, and we we really need to really need to move to get that to get that done as quickly as we can. So the decision tree for flow is: are you see essentially are you seeing blasts in the peripheral blood? Okay. Yeah. Do I see enough? Do I see enough cells that I think are 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 the neoplasm that I can I can evaluate those and and get a sense, is this a lymphoid process, is it a myeloid process? Exactly. Got it. For acute leukemias, we are saying that there is cytopenia because of bone marrow failure. Now, is the mm -hmm. um, you know mechanism of action for that, because there are so many blasts in um, the bone that they are blocking you know release of any other cell? You know, it's not entirely clear. Um, in a lot of cases, yes, the bone marrow is just filled with blast. There's no room for anything else. But there are a lot of cases where the bone marrow really isn't all that cellular. There's a lot of fat in there. Um, it's just that somehow the the leukemic cells so thoroughly outcompete the normal cells that even though it's it's not just a space issue, there's 
there's something else um, that is preventing normal cells from uh, from growing and getting out into the blood. And I, you know, I think the bone marrow is a whole lot more complicated than most of us, well, than, than any of us realize. There's a there's a really complicated environment in there with um, a lot of hormones interacting between the cells, stimulating division, slowing down division, regulating release, the cells getting out of the bone marrow and into the blood. Um, and our, our general tools, you know, the tools that we use as, as diagnostic pathologists to evaluate them are just really, really primitive. You know, a microscope just doesn't, just doesn't get the job done. Um, so in answer, I guess, brief answer, no, I don't know why they go into bone marrow failure. Um, but it, that, that's such a, that's such a characteristic feature of AML that, um, that that's, that's usually my tip off. Okay. So then what about an acute leukemia patient um, that has no blasts in the periphery and it is mm-hmm. just cytopenia that you are seeing? What makes you say, mm-hmm. hey, this is going to be a leukemia patient versus any of these other million reasons that a person could be cytopenic? Yeah. Right. No, no, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. And there are there are times that we'll kind of pace back and forth and worry about it. And I guess the time that it, that, that occurs most, most frequently is in little kids. Um, because a, a lot of viral infections will, will lead to significant bone marrow suppression. Um, you know, they'll, they'll get pretty darn neutropenic with a run of the mill viral infection and they, they do fine with it because it's short lived. Um, but it's tough with a kid because you, you know, you'll see a funny looking cell. You've got a kid who's, Who's significantly neutropenic, maybe a little thrombocytopenic, but boy, you, if you breathe a word of that to to uh, uh, the pediatrician or the family, the panic that that creates um, is tough. So, uh, so a lot of those smears, several of us look at them. We'll 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 agonize over them, and in general, what we'll do, we'll say, just get a repeat CBC in a week, um, and let's see if this gets better, um, rather than cause a gigantic panic because. 95% of the time it's it is just a viral infection. Um and I guess the, in in adults um if somebody has if somebody has significant cytopenias and I can't come up with any reason for it um I may delay a few days um but in general if they have if they have unexplained cytopenias and we really can't come up with a, a tenable explanation for it then I'm going to say you know this is this is worth a bone marrow. And that's, and that's not a, you know, a trivial, somebody just barely below the reference interval. I think there you've got more time, but if, but if somebody has blood counts that are low enough that I'm, you know, I'm worried we're going to have to transfuse them or that they are at, at risk of, of complications, um, then we're going to move much more quickly to, to getting a bone marrow biopsy. All right. So to summarize, when you're looking at acute leukemias, you're saying you're looking for blasts in either the blood or the bone marrow. And you're looking at bone marrow failure, which is presenting in the form of cytopenia, right? Whereas now contrasting, exactly, yep, contrasting to chronic, you you're looking at bone marrow that's preserved. Um, are there any exceptions to that um, uh, differentiation? Um, as in, yeah. Um- like uh hairy cell leukemia is a is you know it's one of the chronic lymphoid leukemias it's it's not CLL but it's a subdivision of chronic lymphoid it typically presents with pancytopenia pretty severe pancytopenia um and oftentimes you don't see many of the hairy cells in the blood so that in general when i 
am, you know, looking when I find hairy cell, I'm really looking more for an acute leukemia and I'm pleasantly surprised to find hairy cell. <laughs> um, some things like um, myelofibrosis, which is one of the um, chronic myelogenous uh, leukemias. Um, myelofibrosis can sometimes present with pretty severe anemia. Um, in general, the neutrophils and the, and the platelets aren't too bad, but they, they can be down. So there are some, there are some exceptions to it. Um, and there's a very rare acute leukemia that, um, you know, maybe they don't even start in the bone marrow. They may start somewhere else in the body and only secondarily involve the bone marrow. You'll, they very rarely, you'll see one that, that doesn't present with bone marrow failure that just presents with blasts. Um, so it happens, but it's not the rule. In general, um, acute leukemia is going to have bone marrow failure. Got it. So, all right. Here we are. We've decided that this patient is now eligible for bone marrow, um, and now you're going to order one. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, what specimens you're collecting? What are they used for? You know, we talked about the flow if you're seeing something in the peripheral smear. Um, but uh, tell me a little bit more about the bone marrow collection process. Is there a typical panel that you're ordering with bone marrows right away, or is it more of an add-on testing afterwards? Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, I think now, um, if we're to the point of saying, okay, this is an acute leukemia, um, I think in every case, people are going to do flow cytometry to try to define the lineage, um, say whether it's myeloid or lymphoid. Um, because that, that really does change, um, the, the downstream workup, the stuff that you do to try to characterize it further. Um, so you're going to do, you're going to do flow up front and, and you're going to do cytogenetics for sure. Um, they typically like to know whether you're dealing with a myeloid or a lymphoid process so they can know what sorts of mitogens to set the cells up with. Um, sometimes we don't have that information back and they just do whatever they can with what they've got. Um, but those two, those two are automatic. Flow and cyto. Um, and over the last flow and cyto, you're going to do in, in every case. Over the last five to six years, um, we've started pulling a, a, a third tube. Um, the first, when you generally what we do just from a procedural standpoint, we, we get a core of bone, the tree fine biopsy. Um, that allows us to, you know, look at the bone marrow as it sat. All the cells are still in the same relationship to one another. And that's how we tell how cellular the bone marrow is. Um, and then we do a, a series of, of aspirations where we put a smaller needle in and pull the liquid bone marrow out. Um, the first one is the one that the, that the, uh, the, the technologist makes smears right at the, right at the bedside. Um, while doing the procedure. Um, and then in the past, you know, when I was training, we maybe did two. Um, now we do three. The second one is a, uh, is a heparinized sample that does the flow and the cytogenetics. And then the third one is typically uh, collected into or, or placed into EDTA um, anticoagulant, and that's for molecular studies. Um, and uh, and we, we do that now in every single bone marrow because more and more we want to there's a higher and higher likelihood that we'll do some sort of molecular study. And most of those work much better on EDTA than they do on, uh, on heparin. I so heparin, heparin you're using for cyto, EDTA for molecular, and then you're doing bedside smears for what, special stains? That's, that's mainly just for the right stain. Uh, we, we really don't do many special stains anymore. You know, we used to do um, myeloperoxidase stains, Sudan black stains, um, uh, esterase stains and um, they've all kind of gone by the wayside. We've kind of replaced that with uh, with flow now. Um, and 
in, in general, that doesn't really cause any problems. Um, but it's just too hard to, to keep a stain like that functioning. You do very rarely. Um, it's hard to keep them hard to keep them working. So so it's the, the main stain that we use is the is the right stain on the aspirate. And that's what we do our differential on. You are not using any non-specific esterase anymore to determine monocytic lineages or anything. No, uh, uh-uh. and and that's the one where that's the one where you lose them because flow is not all that good with defining monocytic lineage. Um, but then again, they don't really treat monocytic things necessarily any differently than they do other things. All of the treatment-based differences are based either on cytogenetic or molecular findings. So. If we if we miss mono, you know, now we'll now we'll typically make a guess. Say it looks like it's got monocytic differentiation, but we won't prove it with a with a special stain, um, because it's not it's really not going to be pivotal to the to the patient's management. Got it. So the course of action does not change too much. Exactly right. It's it's really and and you know most of our cases we wind up signing out as acute myeloid leukemia, not otherwise specified uh, NOS. Um, and they all get treated kind of the same. Um, it, it's the ones that have a particular cytogenetic or molecular uh, abnormality that may get may get treated differently. Got it. And so, typically, my my approach um, when I'm looking at um, when I'm looking at a, at an acute leukemia or an expect, uh, suspected acute leukemia bone marrow, um, you know, usually I'll have the the flow information, or I have a pretty good clue whether it's myeloid or lymphoid by, by looking at it. The first question that always runs through my mind, and it's the question that runs through my mind when I'm looking at the blood, is could this be acute promyelocytic leukemia, um, or the T1517 leukemia, or the uh, PML, RAR alpha leukemia, you know, any one of those names, those are all the same things. That's the first question that runs through my mind, because that one really does require urgent treatment. And that's why in a new diagnosis, you know, if somebody calls me in the middle of the night to say I've got a patient who's pancytopenic and I'm seeing what looked like blast, um, I'm going to come in. I'm going to come in and look at it in the middle of the night um, because patients with acute promyelocytic leukemia can get sick so quickly, um, and there is a rapid there is a rapid treatment that they will initiate, even if you, even if you just suspect it. If you say, hey, this could be acute promyelocytic leukemia. They will typically start the patient on retinoic acid um, until you can confirm it, um, because that it, it really makes a, a difference for the patient's chance of um, chance of surviving. Patients with with acute promyelocytic leukemia are at high risk of um, bleeding, um, especially head bleeds, which can be rapidly fatal um, uh, because they don't have any platelets and because they're in uh, they're in disseminated intravascular coagulation, so they've got all of their clotting functions messed up. So that's really the first thing. I don't want to mess that up. I want to say, is there a chance this is APL? Um, if there's a chance it is, I'm going to call the oncologist and, and recommend that they start the patient on retinoic acid. Um, and then the rest of it, I'll take in a more leisurely approach. So APL is the most dangerous of the leukemias. Well, yes, but it's also the one that you're most likely to be cured of. Um, so it's the one that you can die within a your presentation within how how, um, how but if you, within how long of presentation within hours i've i've seen several patients who died in the emergency room and they didn't even make it to their to their bed um so it can be really dramatic um but if they get through that first couple of weeks um they have they actually have a very good chance of cure i i think it's 
it's like close to 80% of those patients are really long-term cures without bone marrow transplant with, um, uh, with, with chemotherapy. And so, you know, it's a real paradox and you really, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to blow it on that one. Um, because the, the, the difference, the difference in outcome is, is pretty big. Right. It's my favorite, it's my favorite <laughs> disease. As scary as it is, it's my favorite disease because it's a, you know, it's just got all these cool things. It's, you know, it was one of the first things that we, that we understood the molecular mechanism that the, that it was a mess up in the retinoic acid receptor. So these cells could never get the message to grow up and mature. Um, it was, uh, it, Chinese medicine treated patients with, uh, uh, with, with vitamin A, um, when they had blood diseases and it probably all stemmed from some of them got better. The ones with APL got better. Vitamin A is retinoic acid. Um, and then because we do have such an opportunity to make a, to make an impact in it, um, to take them from somebody who can die within, you know, a very short time frame to somebody who can go out and live a pretty normal life. It's a, uh, it, it's really a, it's a very dramatic disease. Now, APL, first of all, one of the things you mentioned, it had a high incidence of DIC as compared to mm-hmm. other types of leukemias. Do we know why? You know, I'm not sure. It, 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 they have, the cells in APL have all sorts of granules, you know, so there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on inside these cells and, and the granules in neutrophil, um, neutrophil lineage cells are, um, you know, they have some nasty stuff in them. They're, they're designed to, to kill organisms. So the presumption is there's something in those granules and it may be known. I just don't know it. Um, but the presumption is that those cells, something in their cytoplasm triggers the coagulation cascade. And, and if you trigger that indiscriminately, you run out of clotting factors pretty darn quickly. Um, and then you add that, add to that the fact that you got no platelets. So no clotting factors and no platelets. Um, you bleed really badly. Right. Uh, and, you know, now thinking back to my case study, this patient also with um, AML ended up getting DIC as well. And I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was pretty severe, but I'm, I'm, that's probably secondary to the sepsis that he had, right? That would be, that would be my guess, right? My, I don't believe he had acute promyositic. Any patient with AML can get DIC. Um, and, and like you say, it's, it's for a variety of reasons. Sometimes just having a big burden of cells that are dying, you know, they die off because they're, they outgrow their, their nutritional supply, so they die. Um, and then the infectious complications that AML patients are subject to definitely trigger, um, DIC. So it's, um, yeah, there, I'm guessing that for him, it was, that was secondary to his, to his sepsis, but. Got it. So since we've kind of started talking about um, APL, which, oh, that's uh, what PML RARA is, the mutation there, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I kind of wanted to get into a little bit more um, the flow and the cyto that you're expecting to see in these bone marrow patients uh, with AML. So first of all, um, I'm looking at flow. Uh, what are the markers that I'm looking for that are telling me that it's a myeloid lineage? So, in, you know, yeah, what flow is largely going to do for you in, in AML is tell you this is myeloid as opposed to lymphoid. And so the, the standard myeloid markers are CD13, CD33, um, CD117 are probably the ones that we use the most. There are, there are a variety of other ones that are, are less specific, but those are going to be the biggest. And then CD34 
not all uh, acute myeloid leukemias will express it, but that's it's nice if you have CD34 and one of the myeloid-specific markers. The CD34 is kind of a marker of very immature cells, stem cells or blast. You can say, oh, I can identify actually that these cells, not only are they myeloid, but they're also blast, and so this is clearly AML. And some people will look in a lot more detail at the flow and try to pick up patterns of antigen co-expression that, that shouldn't really happen in normal mm-hmm. cells. Um, and then they'll use that as a marker for after the patient's treated to say, hey, wait a minute, can we identify any of these other, um, you know, these, these abnormal patterns of expression? To be honest, I, I, I've never been all that sold that that is reliable. Um, I think that my, my eyeball is, uh, is, is probably better, um, looking at a smear than the flow, but some places will do what they call minimal residual disease testing by flow and they'll look at the patterns of antigen expression. Got it. But for me, I'm I'm basically going to say, yes, this is a myeloid process, um, and, and that's what the flow is going to tell me. So my patient uh, in the case study that I presented, he was also uh, CD56 positive. Um, does that mean anything to mm-hmm. you uh, as a marker? You know, in a couple specific subsets in the, in the, the um, what they call the core binding factor leukemias, that has been associated with a worse prognosis, but it's not all that strong an association there, and I'm not aware that it has any particular prognostic significance um, in uh, in other groups of, uh, of of acute leukemias. So it may have it may mean something, but um, it's not something that I would use routinely to. To characterize the not process. to characterize but perhaps you know make it a prognostic marker for yeah it wouldn't be something that I would typically comment on outside of the context of of uh, uh, one of the core binding factor leukemias where I'll say it's uh, inconsistently associated with the uh, with a poor prognosis but in this in other cases I'm not sure that it has the same meaning got it and so then uh, you have your flow then is going to be coupled with, like you said, in your bone marrow with uh, cytogenetics. So you're looking at what loss and gain mm-hmm. of recombinations of genetic material. Um, how are you using cytogenetics to help you determine, um, you know, how to treat a patient, what the prognostic outcomes are? That was really one of the one of the huge developments in in acute leukemia was the was the finding of um, correlations between well sometimes between how they look actually the morphology of leukemia but really strong correlations between um, uh, prognosis response to treatment um, and and cytogenetic abnormalities um, and so that's kind of the first line if the, the chromosomes if you find a recurring chromosomal abnormality. One of the one of the uh, abnormalities that the, that the WHO recognizes, um, then that defines the leukemia. Um, and those are those are groups that the prognosis is similar enough. Um, and we're we're using molecular studies to refine it a little bit more. But the prognosis is similar enough within those cytogenetic groups that it really does guide treatment. So the the example um, would be these core binding factor acute leukemias. And the, there are two different ways that you can get at that. You can Core binding factor is this complex that has um, actually has several, several genes are involved with it, but the but the leukemias are a T821 translocation between chromosome eight and 21, 
and then inversion 16, where you just flipped around the middle part of chromosome 16. Those two leukemias look very different, but clinically they're, they're surprisingly surprisingly similar. They, they're, they're younger patients, they have a good prognosis, and um, they respond so well to um, uh, the initial induction, which is a whole lot of aggressive treatment for two weeks. And then once the patient recovers, they get consolidated with um, uh, high-dose ERA-C, and they, they, their prognosis is good enough that you really don't consider bone marrow transplant for them um, as long as things are going well. Um, now, in, in recent years, both of those also, if they develop a mutation in the CKIT gene, um, their prognosis is worse. And then that may say, F, I'm worried we've lost a good prognosis of this core binding factor rearrangement. Um, maybe we should work them up for transplant. Um, at least get them started on that process so we can go down there if they relapse more, if they relapse earlier. But these patients also, they're not quite as good as the acute promyelocytic leukemia in terms of prognosis, but a lot of these patients are also cured um, and go on to lead, to lead normal lives without having to go through a bone marrow transplant. So these are the TH21 in the inversion 16 patients that can do without a bone marrow transplant. Yeah, they often if if they otherwise are are low risk and they 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 seem to respond appropriately, um, it, most places would not would not send them on for uh, for a bone marrow transplant. Um, what they would what they would say in first remission. So there are a couple ways you can approach bone marrow transplant. You can either say, okay, let's get this leukemia knocked down. We're going to give them this two weeks of induction, um, and then as soon as their blood counts start to come back, we're going to start the bone marrow transplant workup and try to get them transplanted as soon as we can. Um, that's a transplant in first remission. Um, you don't wait to see if it comes back. The other approach is to treat them up front for the two weeks, let their counts come back, and then give them consolidation chemotherapy to try to knock down any, any survivors, um, and then only consider bone marrow transplant if they relapse after that. Um, I mean, the downside of bone marrow transplant is that there are a lot of patients who still die, like, you know, quickly within a few weeks of starting the process. Um, so if you can possibly treat them successfully without that, it's preferable. But, um, you know, a lot of patients, their, their risk of relapse is just too high. Right. And, and in, in my case study, once again, none of these mutations, favorable mutations matter if your patient is already in ICU because he has, you know, sepsis and shock. Right, right. The bone marrow transplant is tough enough that if they're if they're that close to death as it is, you can't um, you, you can't transplant them. They just they just won't survive. And you can't even move them to a uh, to a transplant facility. They're so sick. Right, unless they contain the infection. Right. Yep. And then the then the the, the bone marrow transplant folks, you know, transplant works kind of best when there's really no there's no disease that you can find left. Um, you, you can't transplant somebody with, with a lot of active disease. Um, it just fails so miserably. So what they want to do, they want to get the patient to where you think they're disease-free. You don't really think they are, but you can't find any um, residual disease. Um, and then you transplant them. So the tra transplant centers want to have the patients kind of you know recovered. Their normal bone marrow has come back. You really don't see any residual leukemia. That's the patient that, that has a better chance of, of getting through the bone marrow transplant. Okay. So I'm still kind of trying to understand then the logic behind um, 
you know, what will qualify a patient. Because so you're saying is essentially I have T821, I'm in remission, mm -hmm. I'm all good to go. Uh, this patient does not meet the need for a bone marrow transplant. Then, then what does? So what is the scenario in AML that they uh, do? Yeah. So um, uh, with the uh, like some of the other um, uh, molecular abnormalities, like the the FLT3 uh, mutation. Um, so if they have a mutation in their FLT3 gene, um, that's a bad prognostic factor. Um, that's a really high risk AML. And, um, and now there's specific treatment that we can give patients, um, that, that may improve their prognosis some. But if a patient is diagnosed with a, with an AML that has a FLT3 mutation, everybody's going to agree that if we have any chance of curing this patient, um, we're going to send them off for transplant as soon as possible. So we're not going to wait to try to, you know, to see if they, to see if they respond. Well, we'll, we'll treat them. We'll induce them knock down the leukemia, but then get them over to uh, to the transplant center as soon as possible. We just say, no, nah, this is too high risk. Um, patients with really complex chromosomal abnormalities, um, now in general, those are older patients who don't do as well with bone marrow transplants, so that's another factor to weigh in. But if you've got a complex karyotype, you're at high risk. Um, uh, you're at high risk for failing chemotherapy, and that would be another indication for bone marrow transplant in first remission. So don't wait go straight to transplant. Got it. So then on the flip side of that, is there ever AML patients that you find with a fairly, maybe quote unquote, normal karyotype? Yeah, there are a lot of patients who have a normal karyotype. And of course, we know that they don't, they're not genetically normal. It's just that this kind of crude tool of cytogenetics doesn't find it. And those are the patients where the molecular testing, you know, the FLT3 mutation, um, and now routinely in, in AML, we'll do next generation sequencing where, where we'll look for abnormalities in, you know, different panels or different sizes, but 20 to 30 different genes, um, that we know are associated with myeloid neoplasms. Um, and some of those, um, NPM1, um, CEBPA are associated with a somewhat better prognosis, um, may make you less likely to refer a patient for bone marrow transplant. Um, IDH1 mutation um, makes the patient eligible for a specific therapy um, to, uh, to to negate the effect of that IDH mutation. Um, so so the genetically normal ones, cytogenetically normal ones, are the ones where the molecular tests are the most important. Um, because before we just didn't have any any way to characterize them or narrow down their 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 prognosis. Um, and now with the with the molecular analysis, and of course we find new molecular abnormalities rapidly. I I can't keep up with them anymore. Right. I mean, it definitely sounds like a a complex beast. You know. Yeah. I mean, it gets to the point where you 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 really think that people will have to start developing um, uh, artificial intelligence systems because you know probably none of these mutations act in a vacuum and the combinations of mutations may be as important as individual mutations. And so uh, it's just going to get more and more complicated and hopefully it'll get more and uh, it'll allow us to, to treat more and more effectively, um, uh, you know, a disease that we don't currently treat very well. Right. Instead of having a, a generic treatment, one size fits all. Instead, how do we specialize treatment to every patient based on their mutation pattern? Exactly. You know, from the time I started my training until two or three years ago, there had not been a significant change in the treatment of AML. 
you know, for 30 years, um, we have been treating them with um, uh, uh, adriamycin and giving basically giving them as much chemotherapy as we think they can tolerate without dying from the toxicity. Um, and, and it's really only in the last uh, two to three years that we've started to develop more specific uh, therapies. Um, so that's that's pretty exciting. Um, I mean, that's a it, like you say, it's 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 not this one size fits all or one size fits most treatment. Um, we, we really are starting to get the ability to uh, to tailor it based on the molecular findings. It's good to hear. So now as a pathologist, are you the person that's delivering the news to the patient and their family regarding their newly diagnosed case? Um, generally not. Um, in the past, I, I, when I used to do bone marrow biopsies, um, I was always kind of shocked that you would, that a, a, a physician would send a patient in for a bone marrow biopsy and not, not having told them why they're having a bone marrow biopsy. They're just told to show up and get a bone marrow biopsy. And and people are terrified of that, um, and so I, you know, would always try to be as honest as I could with people and say, you know, one of the things that we're looking at is is the possibility that this is a leukemia. That's a really scary. That's a really scary idea, um, but because that's a possibility, that's something that we would want to identify and start you on treatment right away. Um, so I'm actually going to have you wait here for a while until I have a chance just to see a smear, and and then we'll then we'll figure out where to go from there. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't telling people the exact diagnosis. It was you know getting bad news like that really is best handled in a multi-step process, which you would kind of hope that a patient's primary care physician would say, "Hey, listen, there's an abnormality on your blood smear. We need this uh, we need this bone marrow biopsy to work it up." And here are some of the things we're thinking of. I, I think the, the more the, the greater the number of gentle steps for patients, the better. Um, but uh, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. So it's both, it, you you kind of start the process and the oncologist finishes it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and hopefully we'll have enough information, you know, for the oncologist to, to at least get a start. And, and additional information comes in over the next next several days to, to a week. Um, but that's, yeah, that's the idea. Hopefully we can give the oncologist at least the information. This is acute myeloid leukemia. I don't think this is acute promyelocytic. And at that point, they kind of know where they're going to start with the treatment, and they can they can go with the patient and say, "We'll be we'll be getting additional information over the next few days." Um, but it's a shock for these people. You know, these these people are, have not had there's there's generally not a lot of um, not a lot of warning signs. They they honestly were expecting to stop in, get an antibiotic, and uh, and go home. Um, and all of a sudden, they're swept off their feet, and they're in the hospital for at least a month. Um, it's 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 pretty intense. And I mean, as a med tech, I can kind of attest to that because I mean, even remembering I had a woman coming, I was picking up some plates, something from urgent care. And I walked by a woman who had a limp and she was smiling and she was really happy and she was in for hip pain and did her diff later in the evening. And it once again, saw the blasts in here. So I imagine how, first of all, as as a med tech, um, one of the most crushing things to me is, you know, there are times that I see this before anyone else in the world knows. Right, right. And then on top of that, you know, they came in here thinking that they just had a fractured hip and they're coming out with, oh, now you're going to the hospital. Yeah, right. No, it's, it's, you know, you you try to put yourself in that position, and it's it's pretty overwhelming. Right. 
Now, do you ever find it, because at the beginning of the um, show, we talked about how you were going to send a peripheral flow right away if you're seeing abnormalities mm-hmm. in the blood. Do you find it that sometimes the flow results come back before you even get a chance to do a bone marrow, and now all of a sudden you can make a diagnosis off of that? Yeah, that, that does happen. Um, and and sometimes... Um, Sometimes I'll I'll push if if the white count's very high and they're mostly blasts. Um, I am of the belief that that a bone marrow isn't really it doesn't necessarily add anything to the to the process if if everything seems clear. Um, medicine tends to be very traditional, um, and so the people get very nervous about not doing a bone marrow with acute leukemia. Um, uh, and, and there have been a, a few situations where on the weekend, and we, we really aren't set up to do bone marrow biopsies on the weekend anymore, um, where the oncologists have said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it. We've got flow. We've got cytogenetics on the blood. Um, yeah, we'll go with it. And we won't do a bone marrow. Um, and I, I think that's reasonable. I think you have to be cautious doing that. You have to be very sure everything has to line up. Um, if anything seems un, unclear, then yeah, it's, it's a big deal to diagnose acute leukemia. So, um, get the bone marrow done. Got it. But it is possible, yes. So now when we talk about treating this patient, um, are you also the person that is proposing the treatment or do you closely work collaboratively mm-hmm. with other providers? Yeah, no, the, on- the oncologist, I'll, I'll provide them with some, you know, with, with clues, um, you know, so if I think there's a chance that it's acute promyelocytic leukemia, um, I'm going to call them and say, hey, listen, this is, I'm concerned enough about this that I think you ought to start them on the the all trans retinoic acid um, until I can until I can get some cytogenetics or or fish done. Um, but otherwise, and most of it is done by the the chemotherapy itself is done by protocol. Um, you know, it's based on body surface area, and they get a standard standard number of doses, um, and it really doesn't vary all that much. Um, the thing that's really complex about caring for an acute leukemia patient. Uh, is managing everything else. You know, the, the chemotherapy drugs are tough on the kidneys, so you have a lot of electrolyte abnormalities. You've got a lot of infectious complications. You're on multiple antibiotics. There are a lot of allergic reactions to the antibiotics. So, I mean, the oncologists are just incredible with what they can, um, with what they, with what they deal with and manage in these folks because they they can be so sick. Um, uh, it, it's uh, I, I stand in awe. I, I don't have to worry at all about the about the treatment side. So. I don't remember any drug doses or any drug names. Um, uh, my life is pretty easy. <laughs> but I mean, I'm, it sounds like more aggressive therapeutic strategies contribute to a higher likelihood of complications for these patients. Oh yeah, yeah. No, these the the the, the medications are the, the the chemotherapy is is tough, and um, I mean, patients do get so sick. They 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 don't have any neutrophils, so they get uh, they get infected. Um, they wind up getting you know, terrible mouth sores because the, the lining of our of our GI tract is rapidly turning over, and the chemotherapy kills those cells. Um, uh, you know, people have a lot of pain. Um, so it's yeah, it's the, these are sick people. The, the the drugs that we put into them do a uh, do a number on them, and they're they're really sick. And then of course, once again, you combine it with you know, your multi-organ failure, your sepsis, your DIC, right. and all of a sudden you have a recipe for disaster. Right. And and every day that somebody sits in the hospital without any neutrophils, um, even if they came in without an infection, um, 
You know, it's fairly common for these folks to to pick up a fungal infection, and oftentimes those are, are next to impossible to uh, to eradicate. So that's a it, somebody can be going along pretty well, getting through the treatment, and all of a sudden they start showing up with spots on their lung, and they've got aspergillus growing in their lungs. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's very scary. I mean, the, they are uh, all of these patients are kind of time bombs, just waiting for a, a terrible complication to hit. Um, one of the uh, studies that have been, has been coming out or um, markers that have been coming out in the last several years uh, for patients that are kind of in the situation that, um, you know, my patient was in um, was in a peripheral smear. You start seeing these uh, green uh, crystals of death. Have you heard of those? Well, okay, I'll be honest. I had I hadn't until you mentioned them to me. So yes, but I, I I've heard of them now, but but just barely. So these are these blue green refractile inclusions, and they're finding them in neutrophils and and monocytes. Uh, and looking into it, there's a lot of research that's now starting to come out, and it's associating with acute liver failure, and um, especially when coupled with lactic acidosis, it's actually um, showing death rates between um, anywhere from 48 to 72 hours after discovery on the peripheral blood smear, hence the, the name, uh, very official name of Green Blue Crystals of Death. Um, and it's, they're starting to come out uh, with the mechanism of action for it too, although it's still fairly uh, un- misunderstood or not understood as well. So they're, they're finding that it's, they're made of uh, these uh, residues of lysosomal digestion um, that are released from the liver. <laughs> and so they're finding them when patients that, um, you know, are going through li- acute liver failure, organ failure, secondary to any trauma, um, uh, septic shock, uh, bacterial septic shock. And so uh, one of the things um, that, once again, I wish I had a time clock to go back is um, could I look at his slides again and see these green blue crystals of death? Yeah. Well, because that's the first thing that I that, that I thought of when you when you mentioned it to me is you know my thought is how many of these have I have I missed? Um, uh, yeah, probably a lot. And it's it's funny you don't you don't see the thing you're not looking for if you if you don't know to look for something. It's amazing what you can miss. Um, so I'm I am sure that they have been in smears that I've looked at and I just that hasn't been one of the things I look for, so I, I didn't see them. And especially if you look at photos of them online, I could see, once again, like you said, if it's not what you're looking for, gosh, I could almost mistake these for doughy bodies. Sure, right. Right, you'll fit it into that category that you, um, you know, the category that you know. I think that's that's a common way for our brains to work. Um, uh, and it, uh, I guess they've been, it's similar to the concept of confirmation bias, where if you if you start off with an idea of what something is, you typically find facts to support that idea, right. um, and it's a common source of, of medical errors, common source of diagnostic errors and pathology. Um, but yeah, if you if you're if I say anything blue in a in a neutrophil is a doly body, uh, that's what I'm likely to um, that's what I'm likely to call them in, in my head. So yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm sure they're there, and now I'm looking for them. Um, uh, but I, I, I don't know that I have seen them. I, I, I think maybe as I thought about it, I think maybe I have seen one. There was a, there was a, a, a long ago, an AIDS patient with overwhelming CMV infection. Um, and I remember because that was right about the time that we started to, to recognize anaplasma 
Um, and th there was something funny in his Ninja films, but it's been many years. So that might be the only one that I saw them and didn't know what they were. Right. Well, and what I wonder is, as we discover a little bit more um, about these inclusions and it becomes a part of the regular conversation um, and something that we look for, you know, I think about how is how is mm -hmm. the identification of these crystals? How does it impact clinical care? Are, are then you're going to look at, you know, your lactic acidosis and you're you're pairing these crystals with lactic acidosis. Now we say, OK, this patient is near the end. So we change to palliative care. Um, I mean, how the implications in the future, um, I think, will be interesting. Yeah. And my my guess is, you know, that sort of dis decision is is typically, I mean, strangely, typically not made really on the basis of prognosis so much as it is based on um, family and patient preference. Um, you know, some people want to continue trying when there's absolutely no hope of survival at all. Some people want to say, you know, if, if there's a chance um, that I that I won't recover normally, please stop stop aggressive measures. So they, yeah, there's a lot that goes into those those sorts of decisions, and and probably lab tests are are less likely to be uh, less likely to be pivotal in it, but it's it, it sure is interesting to uh, to think about and to uh, to look for. Right. Well, yeah, family, I guess, complicates everything, huh? <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth? That's a whole that's a whole other <laughs> podcast, though. Come on. Um, I wanted to kind of uh, end on a as positive of a note as AML can be ended on, and and yeah. I was uh, hoping that you could summarize this in. What is the best, best case scenario for a patient that is diagnosed with AML? What is the combination of cytomolecular results that are causing the best prognosis for a patient? And, and what do those outcomes look like? So kind of best case scenario, I think, um, would be the diagnosis would be a, would be a cupromyelocytic. Um, and fairly closely followed by an 821 or an inversion 16 chromosomal abnormality. But the acute promyelocytic is, is definitely the best. Um, that that patient would be would come in relatively early in the course before they uh, were really in terrible DIC or before they got an infection. Um, so what, just with a headache? And Well, you know, and oftentimes the headache is what is what you know, brings them in and that's the precursor to their head bleed. So any, yeah, it's so hard. Um, oftentimes patients will come in with a sore throat um, because they don't have neutrophils. So they get a terrible raging bacterial pharyngitis, um, fatigue because they're anemic. Um, a, a lot of APL uh, patients will come in with petechiae because of their really high bleeding risk. Um, so a lot of things can bring somebody in, but you, ideally if they can come in before they're infected, before they've started to bleed at all, um, and then, kind of best case scenario, they're going to get they're going to get treated with all transretinoic acid and um, uh, probably a little bit of chemotherapy early on. But even best case scenario, they're likely to be in the hospital for over a month, oh. um, and then they can get a brief trip home, and then they're going to be back in the hospital for for additional treatment. Um, and with APL in particular, we treat them with we treat them with arsenic now as their uh, uh, as their follow up. So. They're they are going to be under treatment for over a year, um, and they'll you know get have frequent bone marrow biopsies and frequent uh, blood tests looking for looking for a little disease, um, but that's the best case. Um, 
you know, most patients with, with AML, some of them, if they're very elderly and they have a complex karyotype, um, the, the best advice oftentimes is to say, you know, you probably just treatment is just going to shorten your life. Um, and that we can send you home. We can give you red cell transfusions and platelet transfusions as you need, but, um, you know, kind of go straight to hospice. Don't, you know, the, the risk of chemotherapy is so high. Um, you know, so those are kind of the two extremes. And then there's a whole lot in the middle where, you know, patients have devastating complications and they spend a long time in the ICU. And, um, you know, so it's even the best case, though, it's a it's a gigantic it's a gigantic interruption of a life. It really turns people's it really turns people's lives upside down. And in the best case scenario, what would you say is uh, survival rate long term? Are you seeing 10 years or full lifespan? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, a lot, some of the, the the patients who who are cured of AML seem to have a uh, a relatively normal lifespan. Now, you know, you re- never really know what a person's normal lifespan is. Right. That's very true. All right, that is it for our podcast. Additional content, including cell images, can be found online at ASCLS.org. Uh, Don't forget to join the discussion on our ASCLS Facebook page. Um, That is it for ASCLS Off the Bench Podcast. Thank you so much, John, for coming onto our show and sharing your expertise with us. Oh, thanks, Lena. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate the chance. Yeah, have a good day. Mm -hmm. You too.